Hello, everyone. I'm Gary Urbanowitz, your host for this episode of the Throwback FDNY podcast. Each show has three segments going back in time about the FDNY and its history. You can listen to all of the past episodes by going to the website of the New York City Fire Museum at nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny and choosing the digital platform you use for listening to podcasts. Now, let's start this month's show. In this episode of Throwback FDNY, we're throwing back to some segments from our earlier episodes. This month, we are revisiting some of the stories from the 1970s, including in 1972, when the Model Cities program was introduced, in 1975, when the FDNY began its first emergency medical technician program, and in 1978, when Augustus Beekman was appointed fire commissioner. The 1960s was a turbulent decade in many ways. Members who worked in the era referred to it as the war years because of the plethora of multiple alarm structure fires, false alarms, rampant arson, and attacks on firefighters. The crisis lasted well into the 1970s. One federal government program under President Johnson's War on Poverty was developed to address some of the needs as well as the problems in disadvantaged communities. It was called the Model Cities Program, funded by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, and New York City was one of the places where those funds were put to use. Its goal was to invest in the youth of key areas in the city with an emphasis on encouraging young black urban leaders. The FDNY was a key resource in the program. The department received funding for three distinct areas of service, the Community Fire Safety Education Corps, the Fire Salvage Corps, and the Model Cities Firemen, all launched in 1972. The Model Cities Firemen component never got off the ground, it was challenged and was halted by the New York State Supreme Court before it could ever begin. The Community Fire Safety Education Corps sent young men out to speak on a broad range of topics in communities that were hit hardest by the rash of fires. This included everything from fire prevention to the importance of not opening hydrants without a proper spray cap in the summer. They attempted to explain why false alarms were so dangerous to both the firefighters and neighborhood residents alike. The Fire Salvage Corps did very much the same job as the New York Fire Patrol, but in areas of the city that the patrol did not cover. Their role was to enter buildings to protect areas below the floor on fire from water damage, and after the fire, to aid in cleanup and secure any doors or windows that were damaged in order to help protect the property. How did the program work? Well, to become a member of the FDNY Model Cities program, you had to be a male between the ages of 19 and 27, pass written and physical exams, be free of any substance abuse or felonies, and live in one of the three Model Cities communities, both at the time of hiring and for the duration of the employment. The communities involved were the South Bronx, Central Brooklyn, Harlem, and East Harlem, all predominantly black neighborhoods. They received a salary of $100 per week. Members were issued dress uniforms, and those in the Fire Salvage Corps had turnout gear, just like FDMI firefighters, with a distinctive helmet front that read Fire Salvage and had their company number. 18 officers of the regular FDNY and 35 other members of the uniform force were assigned to oversee various components of the Model Cities program. Of those, one name might be recognizable to ardent FDNY history buffs. Lieutenant Joseph Casabury oversaw the Community Fire Safety Education Unit in the South Bronx. 
he went on to serve as Chief of Department from January 1997 to October 1999. Since funding came from a federal grant, the program could not go on forever. Fortunately, the FDNY was able to secure new funding, and later the program was expanded. But eventually, all funding ran out, and the Salvage Corps was discontinued. Approximately 14 corpsmen went on to become firefighters in the FDNY, with many others successfully taking various exams and getting other civil service jobs. That was one of the goals of the program that can certainly be said to be a success. Hello, everyone. I'm Jennifer Brown, the Executive Director of the New York City Fire Museum. Thank you for listening to our Throwback FDNY podcast. We invite you to become a member of our wonderful cultural institution in Lower Manhattan. We preserve the history of the fire department in New York City, educate the public on fire and life safety, and celebrate the wonderful traditions of the FDNY. To learn more about our membership program and the perks it offers, go to nycfiremuseum.org. Aside from the inevitable rendering of first aid at incidents, where the FDNY were the first responders to arrive, the department did not take an active role in providing emergency medical services in New York City until 1975, when the first class of FDNY firefighters to become emergency medical technicians, or EMTs, began. It came to the attention of some members of the department that many other fire services in the country were incorporating medical training for firefighters. Perhaps the strongest influence of this was a popular new television series entitled Emergency. It depicted two central characters in the Los Angeles County Fire Department paramedic program. The drama portrayed both fire and medical emergencies from fictional LA Station 51. The show premiered in 1972 and introduced the concept to the general public of paramedics performing advanced emergency medical procedures outside of a hospital. Many senior EMTs and paramedics will tell you that this show is what motivated them to choose the career that they did. As described back then by FDNY Captain Mike Stefilovich, training firefighters in New York City to be EMTs would make it possible for pre-hospital care to be rendered in dangerous situations, such as aircraft crashes, building collapses, industrial accidents, and similar calamities. It was argued that certainly, as the largest fire department in the United States, the FDNY should be leading the way in this trend. So on September 8th, 1975, under the direction of Captain Stuthelvich, the first FDNY-sponsored EMT program began. 320 members were selected for training from the list of 1,200 applicants. Each class had a limited enrollment of only 40 to ensure that a high level of competence was achieved. At that time, the minimum requirements imposed by New York State Department of Health for certification was 40 hours of classroom instruction in lecture and practical format plus 10 hours of clinical observation in a hospital emergency department. The FDNY program exceeded this minimum requirement with 96 hours of classroom time plus the clinical experience. Today, approximately 165 hours of classroom training is required. For those who don't know, this was all occurring at a time when New York City was in dire financial straits. Firehouses were being closed and members were being laid off. In order to fund this program and ensure that it was ongoing, non-municipal private funding sources were pursued. They also turned to the Health and Hospitals Corporation for assistance and cooperation, given the belief that the FDNY would now take a more active role in pre-hospital emergency care. 
In order to recognize the members who had successfully completed EMT training and had passed the New York State certification exam, they were permitted to affix an official New York State EMT tombstone patch with the letters FDNY in a rocker panel above. By the way, the official FDNY departmental patch had just recently been adopted. In addition, they would place a two inch by two inch reflective Star of Life decal on their helmet. Hi, it's Jennifer Brown again. I'm excited to announce that due to overwhelming popularity, the museum is extending the special exhibition Firehouse, the photography of Jill Friedman through this summer. Showcasing award-winning photographer Jill Friedman's moving collection of photographs documenting New York City firefighters on the job in the 1970s, the exhibition features images contained in Friedman's book Firehouse, which was released in 1977 and garnered rave reviews, highlighting the photo's honesty and grit that captured the danger, tragedy, heroism, and camaraderie of being a firefighter in New York City. To create this display of heroism and heart, Friedman lived among the firefighters in the South Bronx and Harlem for more than a year as she chronicled their work. The exhibition also features a video of Jill discussing her passion for her work and for the FDNY. For more information, please visit the museum website at nycfiremuseum.org. Augustus Beekman, known as Gus, didn't have an easy start in life. Born in Harlem, his parents separated. At the age of five, his single mother placed him and his sister in the care of the New York Foundling Home, then in foster care, and finally moving him to Little Flower Children's Services in Waiting River, Long Island. He spent his youth there, but returned home to his mother in the Bronx so he could attend Morris High School. While there, he was a member of the track team and became an outstanding runner. Upon graduation, he enlisted in the U.S. Army and served as a sergeant in Europe throughout World War II. Commissioner Beekman began his career as a firefighter on January 1, 1947, in Engine Company 58, at the time the busiest company in the FDNY. He was promoted to lieutenant in 1954, to captain in 1957, and went to gold as battalion chief in 1963, then becoming a deputy chief three years later. He took over the Community Relations Bureau as deputy assistant chief. And in another three years' time, he was promoted to assistant chief, the first black firefighter to hold that rank, becoming chief in charge of the Division of Fire Control before moving over to the Division of Training. Assistant Chief Beekman was selected by Mayor Edward Koch to be fire commissioner on January 1, 1978. No stranger to the most difficult period in department history, known commonly as the war years, he oversaw major changes to combat ongoing arson and false alarms. He worked to reopen previously shuttered fire companies like his own alma mater of Engine 294 in Richmond Hill. During his tenure, a controversial program of limiting response to voice-activated alarm boxes when nobody responded to the dispatcher's call for information was instituted. This one move lowered the strain on and risk to firefighters while conserving valuable resources. It was also during this time that the department was struggling with the historic move of appointing women to the ranks of firefighters. Although females were allowed to take the exam the year before Beekman was made commissioner, it was during his first year that all the female candidates failed the physical qualifying exam. He had to courageously and diplomatically sort through the challenges, which resulted in a lawsuit brought by the women after his retirement. As we all know, the resolution was finally realized in 1982, with the first female firefighters being appointed. 
the mayor and the commissioner, were at odds in 1980. So after serving the people of the city of New York for 33 years, Gus Beekman decided to retire. Upon his retirement, Mr. Beekman moved to Toms River, New Jersey, where he spent the rest of his life. But we can't limit our discussion of an outstanding individual like Commissioner Beekman to simply his career with the FDNY. He was an amazing person who overcame odds, broke stereotypes, and succeeded in just about everything he did. While he was in the field as an active firefighter at various ranks, he graduated Phi Beta Kappa from City College of the City University of New York with a bachelor's degree in history, and he received a master's degree in political science from Queens College. Later, in recognition of his outstanding contributions, he was awarded an honorary doctoral degree from St. John's University. Augustus Beekman was also secretary of the Catholic Child Care Society of Brooklyn and chaired Little Flower's Save a Life adoptive campaign for black children. Fifty years after leaving Little Flower, he was elected president of its board of directors. But his commitment ran deeper than that. He and his wife Muriel were adoptive parents themselves. Although a name from a generation ago, Augustus Beekman exemplified a life of service to his fellow citizens and most of all the children. It behooves us all to keep him in mind and to look up to him for the example he set. And now it's time for our throwback FDNY trivia segment. In each episode of our podcast, we like to test your knowledge of the department by asking a question about a fact from our previous show. Here's this month's. When was the first mechanical resuscitator introduced in New York City for pre-hospital use? The answer can be found in our May episode. And remember, you can listen to that and all of our complete previous episodes by going to nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny. Throwback FDNY podcast is brought to you by the New York City Fire Museum with help from the FDNY and the FDNY Foundation, the official philanthropic organization of the department. I'm Gary Urbanowitz. I'll leave you with this important safety tip. Your smoke and carbon monoxide alarms can only protect you if they are in working order. Make sure to test them regularly and if they have changeable batteries, change them twice a year when we set our clocks ahead for daylight savings time in the spring and return them to standard time in the fall. We can all do our part to be a partner with the fire department by promoting fire safety. So until next time, thank you and stay safe.